Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 22. So this rule allows them to engage their own carrier or carriers and instruct them accordingly when to turn up or maybe bring a truck in to pick up 18 different air freight packages going to different destinations. Your contract was not correctly written. Now, how do we interpret what's happened in light of what you've written in the contract? I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Today, we're reminding our listeners that NK terms are changing at the start of 2020, with the updates and specific changes to be announced by early September 2019 by the International Chamber of Commerce. The global trading system has changed considerably over the last half century, and today we're delighted to be joined by a world-renowned exporting expert with over five decades of experience. We're going to be joined by Mr. Robert Renai at a very important time for the ICC and the world of shipping rules. Bob has had an incredible experience of seeing how shipping rules have changed over time, as well as actively involved in letter of credit rules and regulations and the current international standard banking practice and trade finance rules. Bob is a prolific speaker and active voice within Incoterms and trade finance. He's joining us today from Down Under. Bob also manages two of the most active LinkedIn groups within trade finance and Incoterms, attracting a collective 50,000 followers in the community. I think that makes him a celebrity influencer. Bob, it's such a pleasure to have you on board today. Thank you so much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. So, Bob, in no more than 30 seconds, please tell us your elevator pitch. So, who are you? What do you do? Tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, I'm Bob Ronai. I've been involved in the back office side of international trade for over 50 years. For at least the last three decades, I've been really passionate about getting the trading world to know about the INCO terms rules and to use them correctly in their contracts. In other areas, letters of credit, I'm passionate about dragging the banks out of the 1980s thinking into this century, getting them to realise that they're not the policemen, but they are the servants of international traders. And that encapsulates pretty well what I do these days. Thanks, Bob. You're a fountain of knowledge and you really have seen the entire industry of global trade change over the last years. What has been some of the most momentous changes in your opinion and why do trade-related rules need to change? The most momentous changes would have to be simply communications. I've seen the world progress from cables to telex to swift and, of course, emails. The Incoterms trade rules have changed over time since they were first established in or first published in 1936. They first changed after World War II to cover transport by rail across Europe. Then they changed to cover transport by air and later to include transport in containers. This time, though, the Inca Terms 2020 rules have been written in plain English so that traders around the world whose first language might not be English and who don't have a law degree can understand them. This is because previous rules and these rules have been written by preponderance of European lawyers. 
And I guess that's one of my roles was to be there representing the rest as a practitioner, along with one person from the United States as well and a person from China. But I was absolutely passionate about the fact that they have to be in plain English for somebody in a developing country who does not have English as their first language, does not have a law degree, has an average education to understand. And of course, there are other things, but I can't tell you about them yet. It's great merit on you, given that you are a non of, of a non-lawyer background and also outside of Europe. And I think that's very important. So now, I guess for our listeners that, that may not have come across Inco terms before, what exactly are Inco terms and why do we use them today? Well, back in the era of the sailing ships, they used jargon like free on board, which as in any, any industry, the users created an abbreviation. FOB and CIF, etc. The International Chamber of Commerce realised in the early part of last century that various countries had adopted differing versions of these commonplace expressions. And so they decided to create a standardised set of rules. That was back in 1936. The whole point of the rules is to help sellers and buyers understand their obligations, their risks, their costs. Without rules like this for these abbreviations, the sellers and buyers would need to write all kinds of things in detail into each and every contract. Worse still, there'd be no standardisation of how these matters are described in the contracts. Every one of them would be different and possibly incomprehensible. And that would lead to constant legal disputes over who does, when and what, and at whose cost. The Inco terms rules distill that down into three letters. So long as in the contract, you explain where the definition of these three letters are, i.e. Inco Terms 2020 or Inco Terms 2010 currently. Thanks. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have a favourite Inco term? Ah, well, it depends on which point of view. From a seller's point of view, definitely CPT. A seller who has multiple exports each week wants to control when trucks arrive at their loading dock. They don't want 50 different trucks rolling up from 50 different carriers or freight forwarders. They want to plan their dispatches. So this rule allows them to engage their own carrier or carriers and instruct them accordingly when to turn up or maybe bring a truck in to pick up 18 different air freight packages going to different destinations. It also means the seller has no risk of loss or damage to the goods once they're handed over to his carrier. And that's an important consideration. He has delivered. Now, from a buyer's point of view, of course, I'd have to say FCA as the converse of CPT to a degree. A buyer might want to control the transport and costs through his carrier. For example, he might want to determine whether he wants a vessel which transships in three ports on the way from some obscure supply country or one that costs more, is quicker, and only has one transshipment port, or maybe a direct sailing, which is even more expensive. So that way the buyer has better control. And also he knows that there is no margin built in to the selling price on top of the freight, because a CPT seller can quite rightly treat the freight cost as an input and therefore put a margin on that. Now, of course, even with CPT, the buyer does, does have control via his import customs broker of when his deliveries actually come into his receiving dock. 
So that's not quite the same as the dispatch situation with CPT. On another note, though, I would recommend avoiding the D rules for cross-border trade other than by road or rail. So if, if cargo is moving by road or rail within the European area, fine. But if you're moving goods, let's say in my case from Australia to India, you'd be crazy to use any of the D rules because it puts the seller's responsibility for risk beyond anything that he can control. So that would be my summation. X works, of course, no. International trade, it is almost unworkable. DDP, almost unworkable in international trade. Thanks, Bob. So I guess it's really weighing out the commercial opportunities between the risks and the responsibilities, whether you're the buyer, the seller, and it's also very important to consider the mode of transport. So who uses Inco terms? And more importantly, what happens if you don't use them? Well, who should use Inco terms is very simple. Every seller and every buyer in every business-to-business transaction. They're also designed for domestic trade, not just international trade, but they're not for business-to-consumer transactions like on eBay. Can you imagine a buyer being told he's purchasing CPT and scratching his head? It's not going to happen. But for business-to-business transactions, that is where they are vital. If they're not used, in the majority of cases, nothing happens until one or other of the seller and buyer think they've been hard done by on some matter, whether the goods have been lost or costs or whatever. And, uh, you know, some unfortunate event happens to the goods and that's when the fingers of blame start wagging back and forth. And you know who wins? The lawyers. Inco Terms have gone through numerous iterations over the past years. What have you seen and why have these changes been important for domestic and international trade markets, especially given the rise of mobile phones, the rise of e-commerce and also new trading routes? E-commerce is an interesting one. If if we eliminate the um, business to consumer side of things, then e-commerce is just merely a means of transmitting information. But I've seen the Inco Terms rules tidied up from the rather messy little 1980 version to the 1990 version where they put in a standardised 10 headings for the seller and 10 for the buyer across each of the rules. Then the 2000 version, they were clearer by dividing the rules into the E, F, C and D groups. So XWorks, FCA, F, etc. The 2010 rules wisely modified this by splitting away the maritime rules for sea and inland transport from the any mode or modes rules. That emphasised that only certain rules should be used for road, rail, air and containers. The 2020 rules, I'm not allowed to tell you about that yet. Well, that's my next question, Bob. I don't have anything else to ask you. So look, NK Terms 2020, you're, you're on the drafting committee. I'm going to change the question in that case. How, do you, how does the committee come to deciding what the 2020 rules will entail and what's the thinking behind it and what things do you take into consideration? Well, the first step we did was to look at the 2010 rules and try and determine how relevant the wording was and could we reword it, could we reformat it to be more relevant and more easily understood. I I recall on the first day I asked a question about two paragraphs in FCA, what did they mean? And after 20 minutes discussion, everybody agreed they actually really didn't mean anything, so they were eliminated. So we had a first go at drafting the rules and then they were submitted to all the ICC national committees. And this then elicited a bunch of responses and we went through them 
and we changed what we'd written and we tried to accommodate those things which were relevant. There are a lot of irrelevancies. We had to eliminate where a national committee was dealing with something which applied to their country or their region only because incoterms rules are universal. They cannot be written for one country or one area. They must be universal across every country of the world. So once we'd done that, that went back to the national committees and we got more hundreds of responses. So again, we looked at them. Did we need to change this? Yes, this committee made a very good point about something. So let's word it appropriately. And then partway through the process, some other suggestions were made and we adopted some of those. So there's been an input, not just from the drafting group, but from the International Chamber of Commerce National Committees, who in their turn went out and sought comment from their members. So the idea of the rules is it's, it's not just six or eight people huddled together in a room going, oh, let's do some new rules, but it's contribution from the national committees representing traders around the world. That's very interesting. And actually, it seems like a very iterative process to collect the opinion from the national committees. And just out of interest, are there particular national committees or, or particularly particular countries who are more or less engaged on the INCO terms basis? So, so actually, I'd love to ask your opinion on, on the US, for example, who, who are not as well known for using INCO terms as many other national committees. What are your thoughts? Well, the US was represented on the drafting group by Frank Reynolds, who has been on the 2000 and the 2010 drafting groups as well. So I guess he's the representative very actively, but there were contributions from them. There were countries that we were disappointed to note by their absence, which is a shame. There were other countries who were prolific, and there were countries whose weren't necessarily quite on the mark with their contents. But it is an a long, not onerous, but a long process because the drafting group sets a meeting date and we send out the, um, the co for comments. The national committees need to have time to pass those comments out to others and then get their comments back in, summarise them, send them back into the drafting group. The executive of the drafting group would go through and anything that was so far out of you know, off beam, that would just get an, a no straight away. So that of the hundreds we got each time, we could go, yep, I agree with the executive. We're not even going to discuss that. That's so far off beam, we're not even going to worry about it. So we were able to save some time that way. I wonder if there is a quicker way of doing it because this, this took three years of our lives. I estimate, certainly in my case, that just in the drafting of the rules, I have spent over eight hundred hours. Now, that's a heck of a long time. So if we can somehow in the future do something better than that, well, that'll probably be 2030. So who knows what the technology will be like then. If I'm still around and kicking, I'd love to be on the 2030 rules. There are still changes that I would like to see made to the rules. I can say that I was not successful in getting everything that I wanted through because I was not a majority on the committee and some of the national committees didn't agree anyway. But I nevertheless, as a representative of the practitioners, the people actually using the rules, not the lawyers arguing the rules on those tiny, tiny percentage of cases, I would like to have seen certain changes, which I cannot say at this stage. In anticipation, buy the book. It'll be out in September. Go to 
your local national committee's training conferences. There's hundreds of them around the world that are posted on the ICC's website, but there will be more and more of them. And of course, there'll be a host of them in 2020 when people realise, good heavens, there's new rules. We better find out what they're about. And also, hopefully, the book is easier for most people to read. And we do want people to be aware. We do want a huge increase in the number of people incorporating these rules into their contracts, because without incorporating them, you're actually whistling in the dark and you're hoping that the seller and buyer agree on their own interpretations of three letters. And it's quite amazing. There are still people out there that thinks, think that free on board means freight on board, for example. And people still think of the rules as being principally a cost matter. Oh, FOB means as a seller, I don't have to pay the freight. It means so much more. Yeah, I think that's, that's very important. And actually just thinking about the preparation there. So once the rules do come out and Trade Finance Global, we're, we're, we're media partners of our local, our lo- our, our national committee, ICC United Kingdom and, and doing a lot of signposting. We'll be promoting a lot of their conferences, especially with regards to the launch date and the actual release and also signposting to where our listeners and our readers can buy the Inco Terms 2020 book from. How should businesses, practitioners, let's say financiers, and also service providers prepare once they know what those changes are? They should be reviewing their contracts because I'd suggest to you that probably 90, 95% of contracts written around the world do not correctly use the Incoterms rules. So anybody that, for example, is shipping in LCL or FCL containerized transport and still using FOB, CFR, or CIF, and I even see people still calling it CNF, should really be looking at it and saying, this is not appropriate. These rules do not apply to containers. They don't work. Therefore, we should be using the correct rule. We should be using instead of FOB, FCA, instead of CFR, CPT, instead of CIF, CIP. And look at the rule and understand why, because the point of delivery is before the goods going on the ship. A seller cannot in a containerized transport, organize that container to go on the ship. They don't even know where the container is. It's sitting in a terminal somewhere. Worse still with LCL, it's gone to a consolidator and they hope that that consolidator will consolidate it into a container that is going to that destination. I've got one at the moment, just left a couple of days ago, going to um, Qingdao in China, but it's an LCL, so it's going from Sydney to Busan in Korea. Now, none of us knew what container it went into until after the event. And none of us know what container it will go into in Pusan or what ship indeed it's going to go on from Pusan to Qingdao. So it's got to be one of the correct rules, the multimodal rules, and not a rule requiring a container on board. And I see freight forwarders and banks misusing or misquoting the rules, misadvising, telling people, please pick from XWorks, FOB, CIF, DDP, or other. None of those four are appropriate for containers or air in international trade. And yet here they are, the bank's still telling people that on LC applications, freight forward is still putting on their instruction letters. 
We hope they will learn quickly. Yeah, we hope so too. I think reviewing the rules and reviewing those contracts is is such an important piece of advice there, Bob. And actually opening out that dialogue between all of the different members, all the different parties, whether buyers, sellers, and engaging at an earlier stage is, is more important to say that the companies are in compliance with the with the latest version of the rules. And actually talking about dialogue and community, you're a bit of a celebrity, Bob. Tell us a little bit more about the LinkedIn groups that you uh, that you manage. I have to tell you, I, I comment to my wife quite regularly. I, I, I can't take it all seriously about being an inverted commas celebrity. I live in the tropics now in Cairns in North Queensland, uh, which means I live in shorts and a singlet most of the year round. And... <laughs> <laughs> I just can't take myself seriously as a celebrity. Sorry about that. Sorry if I um, if I shatter any illusions of people. You'd get a shock if you saw. That's why the camera's off. Um, <laughs> but I managed two groups in Inco Terms uh, in LinkedIn, I should say. I managed two groups: the Inco Terms group with about nineteen thousand members, and the Trade Finance group with um, about thirty-five thousand members. Now, questions are raised in both of them. Trade Finance does have a wider range in including letters of credit, collections, bank guarantees, and documents. The Inco Terms Group focuses just simply on these rules. And what we get is people asking for help, asking questions. I mean, I was well known in the drafting group discussions. It was always commented that Bob says, read the book, read the book, which is the case with Inco Terms. Read the book. It will answer a lot of questions. But nevertheless, people will throw questions into the group and they will get a bunch of knowledgeable people responding to their questions. And where else these days can many thousands, tens of thousands of people in every corner of the world get this kind of real world learning? It's, it's the most brilliant tool. And yes, I, I'm fairly prolific in it. And every now and then I can make a mistake too. I'm, I'm not, you know, um, infallible, but um, I try to give some information because my attitude to it is this. I've been in trade in the back office side of things for over 50 years. I've got a certain amount of experience and knowledge. Now, I can either just quietly retire into the sunset up here in the tropics, or I can do what I feel is right, which is try and help people following me with that information, either the information in my head or as a a central point for other people's information to steer those who need the information in the right direction. Yes, I think that's very important there, Uh, especially because the way people engage and dialogue with one another is changing consistently and, and actually being able to facilitate those conversations with different members of the community and also reinstate and, and, and inform the latest rules, particularly around cases. I think that's so important for the international community. So in your lifetime, I think you've seen some very interesting arbitration and trade dispute cases. I think you've overseen three or so multi-million dollar disputes. Can you tell us a bit about what happened here? And and also, more importantly, what was the cause of these? Well, most of these have come about by banks referring cases to me, either referring lawyers or participants to me, because they don't know where to go. Um, Most of them, strangely enough, have involved scammers. And they've been quite amusing. So my role has been to provide expert evidence in them. Uh, One, though, was not a scammer. It was just with a transferable LC where things went wrong and goods were not up to standard. 
So the end user found that they're not up to standard. So we had um, a buyer and then we had a second, his buyer. So that second buyer issued an LLC, it was transferred. The first beneficiary actually had no real assets. They were a trader, but their bank trusted them. Anyway, the applicant for the LLC sold the goods to somebody else and found that they were not up to standard and refused to pay for them. So the applicant of the LLC tried to take his bank on to refuse payment. Uh, That got thrown out because, of course, under a letter of credit, the contract is an entirely separate transaction to the LC under the doctrine of autonomy. The LC stands alone. Another one was a scammer who got scammed by a scammer. That was such fun. And um, yeah, in the end, that uh, didn't go to court. They settled for a pittance. But the scammer who took it to court got scammed by somebody else, so decided to sue them, and he wanted $2.5 million. Now, it was very specific that he wanted $2.5 million for no good reason apart from the fact that he'd lost another court case where he'd refused to pay the freight on a chartered vessel. That was $2.5 million. So he figured he was going to finance the loss he made in the court case. Well, bad news for him. Didn't work that way. So some of them have been fun, and, and I do get referred scammers and... Um, and people who are looking at things through rose-tinted glasses and want to go to their bank and don't understand that banks won't finance on a whim. And when the people annoy the banks enough, the banks will ring me and say, can you have a word to this person, please? So that's fun. That's fun. But the idea is to make sure that people don't lose money. And I've seen a few of those where I've tried extremely hard to make the person understand if it looks too good to be true, well, you know the answer. Yes. And I think even today, the level of sophistication when it comes to anything from uh, anti-money laundering to uh, counter-terrorist financing, etc., the level of sophistication of some of these scammers is, is getting higher and higher. And actually, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of an arms race between the banks and the technology and, and the scammers. And I think it's very important to be prepared by understanding the rules, understanding the contracts and knowing exactly exactly where your obligations and risks lie. And I think particularly in light of the the new Incoterms 2020 rules, it's so, so important for practitioners to read and understand the latest updates of the rules and ensure all of their contracts are up up to date and and working properly. And they may even find that actually their 2010 rules weren't weren't even up to date and and weren't necessarily valid. But uh, you don't necessarily know when your rules or your contracts are actually legitimate until something goes wrong. And that's when it's that's when it's too late. So talking about, you know, when when it is too late and given your wealth and knowledge and experience in in the industry over over the last 50 years or so, can you share some of the biggest Incoterms related mistakes that you've seen in the industry? That would have to be simply using the wrong rules for the wrong circumstances and then finding out that something has gone wrong. One of them, for example, was a specific purpose built ship, which was to carry some machinery and the buyer had their engineer on board and they'd been advised by the seller what modifications were needed for this massive machinery to sit on board the vessel and it was wrong. So the seller had the goods sitting on the wharf at their massive factory and the vessel was modified. There was an argument then about 
who was going to wear the costs of modification, who was going to wear the costs of the goods sitting on the shore, worse still, who was going to wear the costs of the authorities who controlled that river saying, you cannot have your vessel sticking out perpendicular to the wharf, you're blocking the river, you're going to have to move it. So there are all sorts of matter. And you know what? The contract simply was not correctly written. So it, there was an argument. Yes, I made some money as a consultant saying to the guys, to the, to the one client, your contract was not correctly written. Now, how do we interpret what's happened in light of what you've written in the contract? And in fact, do any Inco terms rules actually apply or do we have to look at the facts, not being a lawyer, looking at it from a practical point of view? There's all manner of things can go wrong. So the biggest tips I can give anyone and everyone about the Inco terms rules is simply read the book. Make sure you understand the rules. Most importantly, decide first what you want to achieve in your contract, then find the rule that best covers that. The biggest mistake is to keep using the wrong three-letter abbreviations without reference to any set of rules like Inco terms. You might as well say XYZ or ABC because you won't have a valid definition of what they mean. And also, don't start with a rule, oh, yes, we are going to sell CPT and then work from there to make your contract fit it. Work out what it is that you and your trading partner are agreeing on doing and then find the rule that best suits that and also look at what you've agreed which is outside of the rule, therefore which has to still remain in the contract. So you can absorb maybe three pages of conditions in a contract in three letters if you do it correctly. Otherwise, you're going to make a complete shambles. And as I said before, only the lawyers will win. Thank you, Bob. I think they're very good pieces of advice. So read the book, understand the rules, and also find the rule that covers what you want with your trading partner rather than retrospectively fitting it around the desired rule that you think you want. Very good advice from you. And Bob, I'm sure we're going to be in touch in the next few months or so once Inco Terms 2020 rules are launched and we will keep up to date. And also for our listeners, as part of being Media Alliance partners of the ICC United Kingdom and the Inco Terms launch here in the UK, we will be signposting and writing a lot of updates on all of the latest rules and changes and keeping you guys up to date on what you need to know for yourselves and also with your trade partners. Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here today with us on the show, Trade Finance Talks. Keep in touch and thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.